Righto, let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, may your word dwell in us and bear much fruit for your glory. Amen. Well, we recently returned from a couple of weeks of annual leave, uh, just in time to celebrate our 12th wedding anniversary. I know, I know. Thank you. I was fishing for that. I got it. 12 years, um, six kids, soon to be eight homes. Um, I know you're all envious, I know. Um, when we got engaged, uh, you know, 12 years ago, we were both living in Sydney, uh, but, we, but we got married up here on the, on the Gold Coast. And so my groomsmen and I planned to, to drive up for, uh, for the wedding. But literally, the moment that we got out of Sydney, the moment that we turned onto the Pacific Highway, just uh, at Hornsby there, we got a flat tyre. Um, and I'll always remember one of my friends reflecting that he reckoned that you could always tell a lot about someone by their reaction to a flat. No. No, no, no. I'll, I'll keep that between myself and my very faithful friends. <laughs> but likewise, how one reacts to things like global unrest and cultural turbulence and personal suffering and uh, relational breakdowns, everyday life, how one reacts to these things is very telling. Now, it's not that we have to be stoic in the face of these things, but if you are a Christian, then it does mean that you can react to these things with a certain amount of poise, optimism even. And it comes from the hope that is ours in Jesus. Today we begin a series uh, in 1 and 2 Peter, which I've entitled The True Grace of God. And that phrase, that phrase comes from 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5 verse 12, where Peter writes, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So in other words, in this letter, Peter spells out the true grace that God offers through Jesus Christ and he puts it to us that it ought to regulate our lives, our everyday lives, our circumstances and our relationships as we stand firm in it. But before we get going in 1 Peter, I want us to recall a pivotal moment in Peter's own life. We read of it in Matthew 16, Jesus um, asks his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, or some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then he says, yeah, but what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? And who answers? Simon Peter answers. He answers, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, well, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. If you've read the Gospels before, you'll know that Peter had what you might refer to as foot-in-mouth disease, okay? Constantly was putting his foot in his mouth. Sometimes he'd only open his mouth to change feet. But here, he'd got it. He'd hit the nail on the head. 
And Jesus would use him. He would go on to become a leader among the apostles and among the early church. And so here, he's writing this letter from Rome. We think to mostly non-Jewish Christian communities scattered throughout modern-day Turkey who were getting pushback on various fronts for their beliefs, for their allegiances, for their values, for their priorities. Does this sound familiar? So what does it mean to be a Christian in the face of harassment or even hostility? Peter's message is hold fast, hold on. And he begins by establishing his credibility as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This letter is not simply good advice, okay? It's binding, binding apostolic word to or for the church. And he doesn't simply address it, you know, to whom it may concern. He addresses it to God's elect scattered throughout the provinces. Now, the word elect here simply means chosen. We're told chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Yes, that is God's sovereign appointment of people to faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and a place in his body, the church. And Jesus himself uses this language elsewhere. And here, Peter connects the dots for us between Old Testament Israel and New Testament church. His chosen people made up of both Jew and Gentile. And the emphasis in all this, in this language, is God's initiative. God's initiative uh, and sovereignty in salvation. But I want you to notice from from the very beginning here the, the work of the Father, Son and Spirit. We know, don't we, the Father chooses and ordains, the Son comes to earth and secures redemption through the sacrifice of his blood and the Spirit applies the redeeming work to the hearts of believers. The word exile, we want to we unpack that one too. That, that introduces a key theme in, in the letter, namely that God's people are sojourners, strangers here on earth. Now, in the Old Testament, if you've read the Old Testament before, um, exile for Israel was actually punishment for their sin. No one's being punished here, okay? Believers are exiles because our citizenship is in heaven rather than here on earth. As some of you will know, I was born in, in Africa and uh, my folks were missionaries in, in Tanzania. Now, I came back when I was very young. However, my older siblings, they spent their formative years in, in, in a village in Tanzania, right? And they became what uh, are known as third culture kids. Uh, that is that they didn't quite belong over there, right, because... They were white. They they, they were different. But when they came back over here, they they didn't quite belong back here either because, well, they had been so shaped by their experiences in Africa. They stood out over there. They stood out over here. And it was hard. But so it is with believers, right? Wherever we go, we don't quite belong. That's okay. And we should stand out. It's okay. Peter's flagging from the very beginning that believers, we ought to be distinct from the world around us. 
Now, he's going to go on in his letter to give us some real practical examples as to what this looks like. But here he sets the scene. As exiles, we live in a place and among a people who do not share the same worldview. And that's okay. And in this letter, he urges us not to aim for cultural relevance or even cultural dominance, but for faithfulness to Jesus. And for Peter, it begins with recognising the inheritance of eternal life that is ours in Christ. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Have you ever received one of those emails from a lonely millionaire just reaching out? Um, you know, she's about to die. And you've been randomly selected to receive her inheritance. And all you have to do, you just have to provide some ID and they can get, just get the ball rolling, okay? It's a scam, by the way. It's FYI. I had to, be, I had to clarify that this morning. Um, <laughs> the inheritance promised to us is not like this. It's credible. It's credible. It's grounded in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. But even when uh, inheritances, even when perhaps you have received an inheritance, even when we do receive inheritances, they can be really tricky things to work out. Often the more that is at stake, the more contentious they can become. There are many examples, um, unsurprisingly, among the rich and the famous of wills being contested. Turns out a will is not necessarily ironclad. There's no guarantee that you will receive what you were promised. And disputes can be tied up in courts for years, meaning that some people will walk away with very little, others with nothing at all. But we will surely receive the inheritance promised to us. It is death-proof, it is sin-proof, it is time-proof, and it's being kept in heaven for us. Who through faith are shielded by God's power. We're shielded. What does that mean? As we'll see, it's not that he shields us from things like grief and trials and sufferings. It is that he preserves us in them so that we may well receive this inheritance. See, embracing the Christian faith, this can be a, a simple misunderstanding. Embracing the Christian faith does not provide some cover in some insurance policy against suffering. In some cases, that we are Christians may be the cause of our suffering. But here he promises to preserve our faith through it all. That's how God protects us. That is how he demonstrates his power. And notice, once again, um, God's initiative in all of this, even in the language of new birth, right? No one takes credit for being born. It's something that happens to us. We are objects of his mercy. We've been born again and, and have a living hope, a hope that means we will inevitably have different beliefs and values and allegiances and priorities to the world because it is a hope that springs eternal. So to be clear, this inheritance isn't a call to forsake the world. No, but to live as faithful disciples until this inheritance is, is realised. And in fact, it's this future glorious inheritance that is the lens through which we view our present griefs and our present trials and our present sufferings. So in verses 6 and 7, he says, In all this you greatly rejoice, 
though now for a little while you may have had to you may have had to suffer griefs in all kinds of trials. Friends, suffering's not intrinsically joyful. That would be insane. Okay? That's why suffering is suffering. But believers can rejoice in it because they know that it's not going to last forever. From our perspective, actually, they're sort of sufferings are sort of here today, gone tomorrow. But that does not mean that they're meaningless, does it? We can experience joy in suffering when we believe our suffering has a redemptive, a refining purpose. They prove to yourself and others that your faith is the real deal. As they say, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. And for some, it'll prove that they really had no faith at all. So we all know people, sadly, whom when the going got tough, they give up. Now, likewise, we all know people whom, for whom suffering brings them actually a greater awareness of and dependence on God. They grow in their faith as they keep going. Genuine faith leads to faithfulness even as we suffer grief in all kinds of trials. As I've already shared, my, my nephew was recently uh, diagnosed with muscular dystrophy. And when my brother uh, rang to share the news, uh, through, 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 through tears, their ultimate prayer was for healing. So, so it should be. But even as they wait expectantly, they're aware that if, if God doesn't heal their son, they're going to be vulnerable. They're going to be tempted to give in, give up. And so their other prayer is that the devil wouldn't gain a foothold in all of this. That was his prayer as, as, through tears as he, as, he, as, he, as he rung me. It's a prayer that in the midst of suffering, God would protect their faith and that they may persevere. Well, Peter commends the Christians to whom he wrote because in their sufferings, they hadn't become killjoys. Verses 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. If you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Their love for, this is, this is what's key. Their love for, their belief in Jesus meant that there was this inexpressible joy. Now, I'll be honest with you. I like to think I'm always honest. I'll be personal with you. I've not been characterised by this joy in recent times. For various reasons, I've been wallowing a little. And so my prayer has been King David's prayer in Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. See, as Christians, there is a certain joy that ought to characterise our lives. And it comes from our belief in and our love of Jesus. We enjoy the great privilege of living in the Christian era. 
now that grace has actually come. And so Peter, Peter writes, he says, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. And then when they spoke of the things that have, been, have been now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. The prophets of the Old Testament, they wanted to know more about this salvation by grace. They, 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 when they spoke of it, they, they longed to grasp this gospel more fully. But they were told, actually, no, 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 this message wasn't for them. And nor was it for the angels. Although they, they marvel as they look on. But their message was for you. It was for you. It's for us. It's ironic, really, isn't it, given our curiosity with angels, that in their world, all the buzz centres around what Jesus is doing for you. That's what they long to look into. Your salvation is like a book that they just can't put down because they just can't wait to see what happens next. One author pictures it like this. As the angels watch what God is doing through you, they learn more and more how wise he is and they stand up and cheer and they fall down and worship. I love that. We have such a privileged position in salvation history and we praise him for it. So how do you react to a flat? In this case, suffering. Suffering, either the suffering that comes from just being a human or the suffering that actually comes from being a Christian. We've always been third culture kids. We've always faced harassment and hostility. We can expect to face more in the current climate. Let us not aim for cultural relevance or even cultural dominance, but for faithfulness to Jesus, who suffered himself, died and rose again, securing for us our inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This future hope ought to regulate our reaction to things like suffering. We've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Let me pray. Lord, allow us the ability to view our suffering in light of your, our salvation. May our outlook on life here on earth not be so clouded by our pain that we lose sight of you and your mercy. Allow our difficulties to draw us closer to you in obedience and holiness, recognising that your character is being formed in us all the time. May we find strength in our future hope and your present and enduring word to us. Amen.